I don't remember who it was now, but someone said um, where, whenever Paul went and preached the gospel in a new city, he got stoned. And whenever I go, they serve tea. And uh, being sent overseas always puts you in this uh, kind of awkward position of, you know, you're just a normal servant of the Lord and people want to clap for you. And it's like, well, it feels really pretentious. But uh, it's, it's really good to be with you guys uh, this morning, this, really this year. Um, Sonia and I are so appreciative of, of everyone here at Piqua Baptist, and though the circumstances were less than desirable, we're really thankful that the Lord saw fit to um, redirect our paths and in His providence bring us here uh, to, uh, to Piqua. And so we thank God for you all. Um, I want to look at Genesis chapter 1 with you this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Now, the last time that I preached here in Piqua, it was actually uh, Cornerstone Piqua, and uh, the pulpit has beefed up a little bit since that time. It's been hitting the gym, hitting the weights, uh, eating the protein. It's a little bit bigger since the last time I was here. Uh, I I like it. Um, I want to look at Genesis 1 with you, and um, Genesis 1 lays the foundation for an important question that we as a church need to ask ourselves. Certainly we need to ask ourselves this once, but it's the kind of question that you need to repeatedly come back to, revisit, and uh, realign yourself uh, with. What is our mission? What is our task? As Christians around the world, generally, what what purpose, what task, what, what commission has God given to us on this earth? And to us as a church in particular, Piqua Baptist, what is our mission? Uh, this is an important question to ask because I'm sure maybe some of you have heard of the concept mission drift. It's pretty uh, easy with uh, companies, organizations, NGOs, etc. You have a, a mission statement, a goal, a vision, but with time and through the work that you do, it's pretty easy to start to lose sight of what is it that we do as, as, a, as a group, whatever kind of group it is. And it's kind of mission drift. You, kind of, uh, you can, as a staff or as a company, uh, look at what you're currently doing, and, but revisit your mission and your vision statement as a company and realize there's been some drift along the way. The purpose for which we exist is not what we're doing on a day-to-day basis and not what we're prioritizing. Now, there are many things in contemporary life, society, and uh, around the globe that can contribute to and be cause uh, uh, for um, mission drift. So you and I, as, as believers, we look around the world and we see so many um, cultural, societal, socioeconomical um, issues and brokenness around this world. And we even see that within our own nation. And it's so, that is such a temptation uh, for mission drift because it can be so tempting to think that is the purpose for which we exist, to address that, to combat that, uh, to alleviate this issue or this element in the world. Those kinds of things are important and I actually intend to come back to that at the end of this sermon. 
But that's not the primary mission that we possess as believers and as a church. In order for you and I to understand what our mission is and what our purpose is, what it even is that we're discussing this week for Missions Week, we need to start in Genesis 1. We need to start with the very first commission that was given to mankind, the creation mandate. Some refer to this as the dominion mandate. If you want to understand the mission that Jesus gives to his church, we have to understand the mandate that was given by God the Father to Adam in the garden. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then I want to read some verses in uh, Genesis chapter 2. I want to give you an overview of this um, idea that we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 called the dominion mandate. And then I want to uh, apply it to missions and our conversations about missions as a church and our endeavors to send missionaries. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the uh, heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. This is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now, skip down, if you would, to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there are three things about this mandate uh, that we need to understand and how it informs and fuels our understanding and our commitment to the mission that God has given to us. So the first thing we want to look at is the commission of the first Adam. Now notice I'm saying first uh, Adam. What we see begin unfolding in uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is really a tale, a story. A story that later on, once we read in the New Testament, is a story of, of two Adams of two different men. And so this first commission is given to the first Adam. And so what we want to do is kind of trace this idea of the dominion mandate through this story of the two Adams and see how it relates to the second Adam and then to us. And so the first thing we see is the commission given to the first Adam. This is in Genesis 1, uh, especially in verse 28, where God says to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So it's a commission of dominion. It's a commission to have seed, progeny, children-y, uh, children, and to fill, I, I just made up a new word, children-y. So instead of progeny and children, I'll just say that from now on, children-y. Um, it's a commission to fill the earth with progeny that know the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this commission, first of all, is that this is a triune commission. This is a God, uh, this is a commission given by the triune God. We see the very nature of God and who he is revealed to us right here in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Where do we see that? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In verse 26, Genesis 1 says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, when you look at Genesis 1, 26, you get really two kind of big ideas. What does this mean, let us make man in our image? Who is the our um, in, in verse 26? Some, some believe that this could be this kind of like this court or this host of angels, uh, this band of angels in this heavenly court, in this heavenly realm um, that God himself is Lord over, and they are participating in the act of creation with God. But I think, as is the case with, with most Christians throughout history that have read Genesis 1, this is actually a reference to God himself and the fact that he is a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we confess right in the be uh, beginning of our service. So this is a triune commission. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit create the world and create man, and then as a triune God, commission man to accomplish God's purpose, to accomplish the will and the desire and the purpose of God himself. And the, what kind of commission does the triune God give to Adam? It's a priestly commission. It's a spiritual commission. We see this especially in Genesis chapter 2. Now, when you look at Genesis chapter 2, especially verses 8 through 14, here's what's interesting about what's going on here, the way it was written. The writer of Genesis, in verses 8 through 14, gives us kind of a glimpse into creation when God first created this world and created mankind and placed mankind in his creation. He gives us a glimpse into what creation is and how God made creation, how God created creation. And what's interesting is the language in verses 8 through 14, if you were to compare it with later texts in Scripture like Exodus chapter 15, verses 8 through 14 in describing the world is actually comparable, it's similar to the way that the temple is described. What's the point here? What we see in Genesis chapter 1 is this world was made as this temple, a place in which man would worship God, a place where man was made and known, designed to worship God, the creator of all things. And he places Adam into this, this temple world, 
and he carves out a little garden, the Garden of Eden. If you look at verse 15, it's really interesting. God's, uh, uh, Genesis 1 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So he carves out this, this temple world and he places his man, Adam, into it. And then in verse 15, it says that God placed him there to work it and to keep it. Again, the writer of Genesis is using similar language, similar ter- terminology, similar verbs to draw our minds to Israel and the worship of Israel in the temple. In verse 15, to work it and to keep it, these are the same verbs that are used to describe the work of the priest and guarding and the worship of the people of Israel and leading and guiding them into worship of the triune God that we see in Genesis 1, 26. So the commission that God has given to Adam is a priestly commission. It is a, it is a commission to know and worship the one true triune God of the universe and then to spread and propagate that worship across the globe. Now, this shows and tells us something about the nature of the world and about the nature of us as people, as mankind. Have you ever, perhaps you're visiting with us today, perhaps this is the first time you've been in church for a while, or perhaps you come on a regular basis, uh, but you have questions about Christianity, and you've even thought to yourself, what's What is the point of it? I don't need God in my life. I seem satisfied. I seem content as I am. I don't need this gospel that they talk about. But Genesis chapter 1 shows you and it shows me that when God makes the world, when God made the world and he made humanity, he made the world a place for worship and he made humans to worship. He created humans as worshipers which means it's in your very nature, it's in your very design and makeup to be a worshiper. It's inescapable. You and I are going to worship, and we don't have a choice in the matter. It's literally how we were made. The question is not, will we worship? Rather, what will we worship? The question is not, will we be given to worship? Rather, to what are we given to worship? Now, you still might deny that, but don't you ever sense a restlessness in your bones, in your heart? You know, I remember before I became a believer, I was, uh, in God's providence, I was birthed into a non-Christian home uh, before I became a believer due to circumstances growing up. Uh, I had objections uh, to Christianity. I had objections to the gospel. One of them used to be like, if God is so good and so loving, why, why all this evil? Why suffering? And, and this led me to, uh, for a time to um, claim to be an atheist. I just I didn't think there was a God. And, but you know, during that time, as much as I tried to at least claim to deny God and claim that I didn't need God, there was something in me that was longing for something. There was a restlessness in me. And all of us possess that restlessness, and we seek to fill it with other means and in other ways. Do you constantly find yourself frustrated in your relationships 
wanting your relationships to give you more than they can give? Do you constantly, regularly have relationships where they end in destruction, uh, bridges burnt, relationships tense, and you find yourself constantly thinking, why can't I just find the one? Why do these relationships always end in disappointment? Well, why is it that you're looking for that in a relationship? There's a restlessness in you. You're looking for something that you don't possess. You know, we live in an area of the states, uh, you know, certainly the area I, I was born and raised in, Middletown, um, there was a major drug, drug epidemic. What is it when you, when you turn to substances, when you turn to other means, what is it that you're looking to fill? There's a restlessness inside of you that you're longing to satisfy. Why do you possess that? Why do you want community with others? Why do you want a relationship with someone? It's because you were made to know one person, God. And until you truly know the one for whom you were made to know and commune with, you will always be restless. You will always be dissatisfied because that's the way you were made. It's unavoidable. You can't outrun it. It's like trying to outrun your shadow. It will always be with you until you turn to him. This is how we were made. So he, he makes Adam as a worshiper and he gives him a priestly task. The dominion mandate is a priestly task. You could actually say the dominion mandate is the first great commission. So here's what God says to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion. Meaning, Adam, raise up children, raise up offspring that know and worship me just as you do and do this until the entire world that I have created is filled with people that know and worship me and submit to my kingship, to my rule and my reign over all things. So when we look at Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, we have to ask, what would have happened if Adam had obeyed this commission, this first great commission, this creation mandate? You know, here, a lot of Christ, uh, many Christians throughout history have um, kind of posited this idea, have given us this idea that God actually made a covenant with Adam. It seems like we see that here in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God makes a covenant with Adam. If Adam obeys the dominion mandate he will be blessed. In what way will he be blessed? Well, what's interesting, when you look in Genesis chapter 2, what do we see? We see the tree of life. Almost assuredly, most likely, what would have happened is for a period of time, if Adam had obeyed this mandate, and he would have filled this earth with worshipers of the triune God, at some point in time, God would have allowed Adam and his seed to partake of the tree of life because he was faithful to the covenant God made with him and they would have never died. And this earth would have never known sin, which means it would have never known suffering, misery, evil, separation from God. But as it happens, 
This is not what happened in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is the failure of the first Adam. This is the second thing I want you to see about the dominion mandate. The failure of the first Adam. Look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The failure of the first Adam. Adam is not faithful to the commission, to the mandate that God gives him. And therefore, instead of bringing blessing upon himself and all creation, he plummets, he brings curse. He plummets mankind and the earth alike into chaos, into sin, and alienates us from God. Now, this is a point where you and I are looking at this, and you're saying, okay, Glenn, you said Adam plummeted us into sin. Adam brought us into death, destruction, decay. But why us? If this was a mandate that God gave to Adam, why do we suffer for what he did? And this is because Adam was representing you, and he was representing me in the garden. He was our priest. He was our representative before God. So if Adam succeeds, we succeed. If Adam falls, we fall. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. Why, why do I have to suffer for what Adam did? Why do I get the curse of Adam's disobedience? And this is because you and I, living in modern-day America, that's just so individualistic, it's all about the self, we don't quite grasp this idea that someone else can represent us. And that with them we rise and with them we fall. With them we're blessed, with them we're cursed. But the reality is, you and I know this is how all of life works. For example, did I choose to, my last name is South. Did I choose to be a South? Did I choose that my heritage would be some, uh, some group from Cambridgeshire, England, that in the 1600s would, would uh, sail on a boat and come to America. Did I choose that for myself? No. That was chosen for me. Did I choose that at some point my ancestors would make their way down into Ohio and that I would be born and raised in Middletown, Ohio? I certainly didn't choose that. I don't know if y'all have heard of or read the book Hillbilly Elegy, 
Well, it just so happens he is from Middletown, Ohio. Would I have chosen, if I had the ch a choice in the matter, would I have chosen that I would be born in the town that was writ uh, written about in a book called Hillbilly Elegy? No, that's not what I would have chosen for myself. Why did that happen? That was done to me. That was a decision made for me. Why? Because an ancestor long ago, long ago, long ago was representing me. And the decisions that he made centuries ago impact the life that I now have in the 21st century. We're all represented by someone in some way. You might go to your work and you as an employee do just fine at your job. But what if your boss doesn't know how to manage a company well? What if he or she doesn't handle finances well and the, and, and the company just um, collapses? Well, you've just lost a job, but it's not necessarily your own direct doing. It's because someone else was representing you. In the same way, God sets up and he commissions Adam to represent all mankind and Adam falls. And when Adam fell, not only is he himself directly cursed, not only is he himself directly subjected to hardship because of his fall, but all creation and all mankind. And we see this work itself out in two primary ways. We see it horizontally and we see it vertically. So first of all, horizontally, if you would, look at um, the end of Genesis chapter 3 in verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's happening in Genesis 3, verse 24? It's not just that Adam and Eve have just been banished from the Garden of Eden, though that would have been tragic in and of itself. It's this beautiful, immaculate place. The banishment in Genesis 3.24 is not just a banishment from a place, but from a person. They are driven out from the very presence of God himself. Genesis chapter 1, man is naked and fully exposed in the sight of God and is communing with him. God is bringing animals to Adam and Adam is naming the animals. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is concealing himself from God and pursuing separation and alienation. And the culmination is verse 24, they are fully driven out. So Adam's failure to obey and fulfill the dominion mandate has affected each and every one of us horizontally. It's cut and separated, cut us off from God himself and from his very presence. The effect of that is that it has affected us vertically. Our relationship to individuals, to people, our relationship to creation. It has affected and destroyed everything. This actually is why immediately after Genesis 3, you get Genesis 4. Why is it, much time has passed between, between Genesis 3, 24, Adam and Eve driven out and banished from the Garden of Eden from the presence of God, and Genesis 4, verse 1, now Adam knew his, uh, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Much time has passed between the two. So why does the writer 
choose to not actually fill in the details what happened between verse 24 and the birth of Cain and Abel. Why does he go directly here to show us a point? As man is driven further and further away from God, we are driven further and further from ourselves. The more hostility we have between ourselves and God, the more hostility there is between man and man. And the culmination of this is chapter 4, where you have a brother killing a brother. The further away that man gets from God, the more hostile he will become to his fellow man and to creation. This is precisely why we see the chaos and the destruction in the world that we see today. Now, that's a really dark and gloomy message. That's actually really depressing. You know, sometimes with Missions Week, you want to, a lot of times missionaries want to, you know, give some inspiration and motivation but uh, not so much this message. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, why on earth are we talking about man killing man and being separated from God when we're supposed to be talking about missions? Well, it all connects. God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. But how does he begin to reveal himself? What kind of God is he, even in the face of man's rebellion? even when man has sinned and, and uh, separated themselves from him. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God, our God, is a righteous, holy, and just being. He had every right every right by nature of who he is to annihilate man in this moment. If God wanted, he could have made the Bible very short. Genesis 1 and 2, done. That could have been it. But what we see in Genesis 3.21 is God revealing more of himself to you and to me in the kind of God that he is. In the face of rebellion and alienation, God is a God of promise and provision. Even when man ostracizes themselves from him, when they flee from him, when they disdain him, God comes to us as a God of love, grace, and mercy, and he clothes us. And in Genesis 3.15, he gives a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is a God of promise and provision. And what he promises is that though Adam has fallen, though he didn't fulfill the dominion mandate, I will send someone who will do it for you. Someone will bring provision through my promise. Someone will come and fulfill this task on behalf of God's people and God's creation. As the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible unfolds, this is the central point. This is the central and crucial question and message. Who is going to be the one to come to fulfill Genesis 3.15 and to fulfill Adam's mandate on our behalf? So here's where this gets really interesting. 
Now, if we kind of fast forward a bit in the story, if we skip ahead in a few chapters, we come to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse number 1, what does God do there? He gives the dominion mandate to Noah in exactly the same manner. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So, okay, so now we're tracing out this idea, this plot line, this promise. We're waiting. There's going to be the one to come who will fulfill the mandate. God gives the mandate to Noah. Is it Noah? Is he the man of promise to undo what Adam has done and to complete what Adam left undone? Well, what happens with Noah and his sons? What happens in the life of Noah? We learn that Noah is and his family, and his offspring are just as wicked as Adam and his offspring. Noah can't be the one to complete the task. So we're left wondering again, who is going to be the one to do it? So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls out a man named Abram, renames him Abraham, and he makes a covenant. He gives a promise to the man Abraham Now, here's what's interesting about the promise. If you look at Genesis chapters 12 and 15, the promise is the dominion mandate. But here, here we see God re-giving, republishing this dominion mandate, but he's giving it to Abraham as a promise. And he's saying, there's going to be one to come and fulfill this. It's going to happen through your line, through your heritage, through your children. But I'm going to give a promise that it will happen. So now we know when we're reading the Bible, we read Genesis chapters 12 and 15. We know, okay, that promise, one in Genesis 3.15, who's going to come and fulfill the mandate in Genesis chapters 1, 26 through 28, they're coming through Abraham's line. So is it going to be Abraham? Well, what does Abraham do with his wife? He lies. And when he's a visitor in a foreign land, he tells them that that's not his wife, but his sister. Abraham, even the great man Abraham, is broken by sin and he can't fulfill the mandate. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with a man named David, the great King David, that he's going to build a temple for him and that he's going to make his name great. What's happening in 2 Samuel 7? In that promise, in that covenant, God is kind of alluding back to the dominion mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And it's saying it's going to happen through the line of King David. So is it going to be David himself? David doesn't get to build the temple. The great King Solomon, for all his greatness and all his wisdom, is wicked. And he fails. So it seems time and again there's this promise, someone's going to do it. Someone's going to undo what Adam has done. They're going to fulfill the mandate. But then they fall. There's this constant roller coaster going throughout the Old Testament. But then we come to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. God gives a promise that the Son of Man is going to come. And he's going to be given a people. And he's going to be given dominion. What is that? That's Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's the dominion mandate. And God is saying that there is going to be one to come, a son of man, who will fulfill the mandate. He will complete it, and he will be given a people, and he will be given dominion, rulership, lordship over the earth. 
So now everyone's anticipating, who's going to be the one, according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, to come and to be given dominion over all creation and to save us from our sin? Matthew chapter 1. We open up and we see they rejoice at the birth of Jesus because he has come, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, in fulfillment of his covenant. Matthew ties it to the covenant to Abraham and to David. He comes in fulfillment of the covenant to give salvation to his people, to give them rest. So then we see in the life of Jesus, he, Matthew chapter 4, he is led into a garden just like Adam. Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden and given a mandate, and he failed. But Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the Garden to be tempted, but he didn't fail. So the last thing we see about the dominion mandate is the victory of the second Adam. The second Adam was driven into the Garden, driven into the wilderness, but he won. He goes into the Garden, and he is tempted by Satan, but he rebukes him, and he comes out of the Garden victorious, showing us he's the one. He is the one that Genesis 3.15 promised. He is the one that, was, that Noah was like, but was unlike. He is the one that Genesis 12 and 15 that Abraham prophesied of and that the covenant anticipated. He is the one that Daniel 7.13 and 14 said would come and have dominion over all peoples. And he was driven into the garden. And he represented you and me in the garden, just like Adam. But guess what? He came out victorious. So yes, you and I fell with Adam, but we rise, we are resurrected on behalf of the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. So Jesus is the one who comes and fulfills this on our behalf. And now, we see this recommissioning taking place. Jesus, the Son of Man, guess what? Son of Man goes all the way back to Genesis 1. It goes back to Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the second Adam. So now the second Adam has come, and he has won and completed the mandate on behalf of his people. And now he recommissions us just as the commission was given by the triune God in Genesis 1, verse 26. Matthew 28, if you would turn there. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see the language? Dominion mandate. Just as God, when he first created the earth, the triune God commissions man in his image to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Jesus, as the second Adam, as the Son of Man, has won the victory and secured dominion over all creation. He is Lord, and he now recommissions his church to go and fulfill this task to populate this earth with worshipers of the triune God. So in Genesis chapter 1, God gives the first Adam a bride to complete his task. 
Jesus, because of his faithful obedience, was given a bride, the church, and he now commissions the church in his place to go preach the gospel on his behalf to subdue subjects of his kingdom among all the nations. Just as the Spirit of God was present in creation, hovering over the waters, we see the Spirit of God in Genesis or Matthew 28, 16 through 20, commissioning us as the disciples to go to all the nations bringing about a new birth. So in the first commission, the dominion mandate, God calls Adam to raise up natural offspring who know and worship him. Now, through the work of Jesus and his resurrection, the Spirit commissions us to bring about spiritual rebirth, spiritual new birth, and spiritual progeny of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Now, in the place of actual warfare, We go engaged in spiritual warfare, preaching the gospel, the sword of the spirit, to bring about the victory of Christ among all the nations. So now what I want to do with this understanding of the Great Commission and the Dominion Mandate is I just want to quickly give us a few points. What does this mean for us? How are we to understand this? Number one, the Great Commission and the task of the church. You see right here in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. This is the work for which God has been working throughout all time to bring about Jesus to live on behalf of his people, obeying the law of God in our place and to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And now through faith in his name, in his finished work, we are reborn. We are given the Spirit of God. We are reunited to God the Father. We are made right in His sight. And He now commissions us to preach the gospel to the nations. This takes precedent and priority over every cultural concern, over any task that you and I and us collectively as a church might give ourselves to. The priority and the preeminence is the preaching of the gospel among the nations. Second thing, the Great Commission and our motives. Now, what do I mean by this? It is so tempting when we're thinking about missions this week and praying about missions and pleading that God would send out more from among us, not just Sonia and me. We hope that we are the first of several families to be sent out to the nations. But what is our motivation for doing this? We need to be careful when we come to the dominion mandate to not think that's a task that we now take up. And we're going to exercise dominion over all things. Jesus did this for us. And he did this for our justification. Jesus completed the dominion mandate on our behalf. Which means we are made fully made right in the sight of God on the basis of Jesus and his life and his work alone. Which means, implication, it's not through our obedience to the Great Commission. That sustains us in the task of missions. It can be so tempting to want to give yourself to missions because you want adventure. You want to go see a foreign culture. You want to see a foreign context. You want to learn a foreign language. But can I tell you, when you get to the nations... The temple, how exciting is it for you to see a red barn in Ohio? Probably not that exciting. We see them all the time. Can I tell you, when I show friends overseas pictures of red barns in Ohio, they think it's so cool. 
They think it looks so different. You know, eventually that temple in Cambodia that seems so exotic to you, it becomes the red barn in Ohio. You don't care anymore. It doesn't stand out to you. Can I tell you the, the great mosque in Istanbul, Turkey? Eventually that too just becomes the red barn in Ohio. It doesn't stand out to you anymore. No longer does it seem exotic and exciting and adventurous. Eventually, the Khmer person just becomes the Ohioan. The Turk just becomes your neighbor across the street. And then at times you're left with, why are we even here? This place isn't exciting. It actually isn't all that easy and fun to live here. Why are we here? Is it to make ourselves right with God? To subject ourselves to suffering just so he'll be pleased with us? Is it because we want excitement and adventure? No. It's because we're grounded in the gospel and we're saying Jesus has done it all. We're not, a, we're not gaining any favor with God because of this task. We do it out of delight in what he has done for us in Jesus, the second Adam. The Great Commission and our vocation. What we see when we understand the dominion mandate in this way is we can say that Christians live under two mandates, the creation mandate and the Great, Com- and the great Commission mandate. There's a gospel mandate and a creation mandate. We're still called to engage in having children and building up culture and participating in cultural activities of the world. And work itself is validated by this. And God is going to call each of us to different spheres and different vocations. And in whatever sphere that he calls us to, we want to give ourselves both to the creation mandate and to the great commission mandate. Honoring God through our work and also seeking to be salt and light and make disciples wherever he is. And so the question before us this week is not, am I called to missions or not? It really is more the case to which vocation is God calling me so I can live out the mission? Is he calling you to stay in Piqua? Do that to the best of your ability with diligence to the glory of God and seeking to be salt and light in whatever sphere he's placed you in. Has he called you then to go overseas? That's something to wrestle with and prayerfully consider this week. And then lastly, the Great Commission and spiritual warfare. I want to end here, and we can pray with on this note for uh, missions this week. In Genesis chapter 4, what we immediately begin seeing happen after Adam fails in his task of the cultural mandate is you start to see these kind of two lines emerging on the earth, a satanic line and a godly line. That's why Seth is so prominent in the early chapters of Genesis. What is the author showing us? That, that hatred, that warfare that's going to exist in Genesis 3.15 between Satan and the seed, that's going to work itself out through all history. And now we see that happening through those who profess the name of Christ and those who reject it. We see professors and profaners. We see embracers and uh, rejectors. It's the city of God and the city of man always clashing and interacting. Which means whenever we go to the nations, we can anticipate spiritual warfare. And so let us pray that as God sends us and sends more out among us, and even as we engage in our country and in our culture, that God would strengthen us in the midst of spiritual warfare as we preach the gospel. That he would give us boldness in the face of spiritual warfare. 
and that he would embolden us and strengthen us to align ourselves with Christ, the second Adam, and to preach his gospel, whatever the cost and whatever may come, for the sake of his glory among the nations. And the vision that is animating us and driving us is 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the, of the mandate. When Christ has accomplished all things, and it says, and he offers up the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus now is building his people. He's building his kingdom and exercising dominion. And he allows us to participate in that through the preaching of the gospel. So let us give ourselves to this for the glory of Christ among all peoples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great truth. And we ask that you would strengthen us as a church and excite and animate and direct our obedience to it. Send out more from among us. Use us among the nations for your glory and your dominion. In Jesus' name, amen.